Welcome to the River Bluff Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you enjoy this sermon from Director of Missions Mobilization, Dave Harden. And for more information about us, please visit riverbluff.org. Well, good morning, River Bluff family. It, it is both a privilege and an honor to be gathered together here corporately, uh, and then for you watching online as well, to be gathered as a family of River Bluff to worship together our great and mighty God. And and what better way to do that in song, through prayer, and now we continue through the reading of God's word. And um, I had no idea that the worship band was gonna sing that song, but that's all we're gonna talk about today, how Jesus is the center of it all. And so I'm glad that you are here, and I'm glad that we get to look at God's word together. Now, last week, Pastor Joe finished off the series on Nehemiah. I think it was something like 19 um, sermons. And, and towards the very end of last week's sermon, he said something that really stood out to me. He said, as we finish out Nehemiah, it's not the end of the story. The story continues on. And, and so that got me to thinking, well, what story is he talking about? And and the story he was referring to is actually the story of God's redemption through Jesus Christ. And so what I want to do for us today is I want to go back and take a look at Nehemiah and see how that fits into the overall story of God's redemption through Jesus Christ. But I also want to give us a glimpse of how that story continues, the story of God's redemption through Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul writing to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 1 says, this story of redemption, actually God had that in mind even before the foundation of the world. Even before the world was made, God had this plan, this story of redemption. And then we come to the garden, we see Adam and Eve turn from God, turn to their own selfishness, following Satan, And we see the story of God's redemption now promised by God to Eve, saying that he will send one who is one of her offspring, distant offspring, that will be the redeemer that God will use to redeem the world back to himself, to put everything right. Obviously, that's a reference to Jesus Christ. And then we see God... As the story of redemption continues, we see God make a promise to Abraham that one of his offspring will be that one that God will use to redeem the world back to himself, that one to whom the whole will bless the whole world. And so as we look at the book of Nehemiah, as we've gone through it, And as we take a look back at it, I want us to see how this story fits into the overall story of God's redemption. And then, like I said, I want to point us a little bit further ahead to see how that story continues. Um, Before that, I want to show share with you something. Uh, One of my favorite children's Bibles is called the Jesus Storybook Bible, written by Sally Lloyd-Jones. And she talks about the story of redemption here and how Jesus fits into it. So let me read this to you. The Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. 
This is the story of redemption that we're talking about. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. It's not a fairy tale. It's all true. It's all reality. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them or redeem them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story, and at the center of the story, guess what? There's a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. That baby is Jesus Christ. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, and suddenly you can see a beautiful picture. And this is no ordinary baby. This is the child upon whom everything would depend. This is the child who would one day be sent to redeem the world. So that's what we're going to look at. And we're going to see how the book of Nehemiah fits into that big story, that story of redemption. And then, like I said, we're going to look and see how that story continues, that story of redemption. And so what I'd like us to do right now, if you have your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. And here in Nehemiah chapter 8, I want to begin just looking at verses 1 through 3. And just to give you some context for what's going on here, we've seen in the book of Nehemiah, God has brought some of the Jews who were exiled in Babylon back to the land of Judah, back to um, the city of Jerusalem, And they have rebuilt the wall around Jerusalem. So we get to chapter 6, and we see that they complete, they finish the building of the wall. And we come to chapter 7 in the book of Nehemiah, and there's a list of all those who are exiled in Babylon who have come back, who have returned. And then as we begin chapter 8, they're gathered together. All these who had been exiled had come back to Jerusalem to live, to reestablish their lives there. They're gathered together, and and that sets the context for what we're going to look at here in Nehemiah chapter 8. So let me read verses 1 through 3. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday. Can you imagine that? That sounds like a long time to be standing and listening as Ezra reads the law of Moses to the people. In the presence of men and the women and those who could understand, and all the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the law. And so here's the scenario. Like I said, all the people who had been exiled have come back, 
Ezra is reading the book of the law to them for a long time, from early morning till midday. I want to jump down to uh, verses 8 and 9. It says, they read from the book of the law of God clearly, and they gave sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And so I saw that and I wondered, what is it about the law that would cause the people to respond by weeping? Ezra has just read to the law to them. Nehemiah and others have joined in. And it says they read it very clearly. And the people understood it clearly. They heard it and understood it. So what is it about the reading of the law of Moses that would cause them to respond in sorrow and sadness, bringing them to weep? Well, if we turn to the New Testament, it gives us a little clue as to what's going on here. So I want to take a look at Galatians chapter 3 and just look at a couple verses here in Galatians chapter 3. Um, what's going on in the region of Galatia is that there had been many who were Gentiles, they were not of Israel, who had come to put their faith in Jesus Christ. And then these men came who were Israelites, and they were saying, well, that's all good and well that you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, but if you really want to be right before God, you need to follow the law as well, the law of Moses that they just read there in the, in, um, the book of Nehemiah chapter 8. And so here in Galatia, Paul is writing to those believers who were trusting in Christ alone who are being told that you need to also follow the law if you're going to be right before God. So let me read to you verses 10 and 11 here. It says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. And so what Paul is telling the believers here in Galatia and, and us as well is that you don't need to add the law to your faith in Jesus Christ. Your faith in Jesus Christ alone is enough. In fact, he says, no one is justified that word justified means being declared righteous, being declared right before God, coming into a right relationship with him. No one is actually declared right before God by following the law. Because the reality is, is that no one could follow the law completely as God had commanded. And so, as we see the people respond in sorrow and sadness and weeping to the reading of the law, they understand the position they're in. They understand that they're hopeless. They understand that they haven't followed the law 
And they're not in a right standing with God. They're not in a right relationship with God. And so they have no hope. If we go a little bit further here in Galatians chapter 3, I'm going to read verse 19. Paul asks the question, why then the law? He says, it was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. That offspring, if you look a little bit earlier in the book of Galatians, is talking about Jesus Christ. So as we take a look at Nehemiah chapter 8, we see that Ezra and Nehemiah, some of the others, read the law to the people, the law of Moses. They respond in weeping. It's because the purpose of the law was not to give them a right standing before God because they could not follow the law perfectly. Therefore, the purpose of the law was to show them their unrighteousness, their sinfulness, so that they would then respond to that by casting themselves upon the mercy of God and trusting in the promise of the Redeemer to come, that Redeemer being Jesus Christ. So the purpose of the law was, if we were to put it in a nutshell, was to show them their sinfulness, their hopelessness, and point them forward to Jesus Christ. And they realized the position they were in. We are in trouble. We have not followed the law as God has commanded. And so they respond in weeping. I want to move on a little bit further here in the book of Nehemiah. Verses 8 and 9. says, They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave sense that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for they all wept. Okay, we read that earlier. Just wanted to make sure that you got that down. Um, moving on in the book of Nehemiah to chapter 9. I want to read verses 1 through 3. It says, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Well, it doesn't take a math genius to understand how long that was. If we've got 24 hours in a day, a quarter of the day is six hours. So don't ever complain about how long our sermons take here. They were standing there for six hours. But then it continues. And it says, For another quarter of it, another six hours, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. So what's going on here is that the law has been read. The people respond 
by weeping. They're told, don't, don't be sorrowful, be joyful, because what that was pointing to was Jesus Christ. And so now they're hearing the law again. I want to move on to just give you a little overview of chapter 9. We're not going to read the whole chapter. We will read a good portion of it. But what we see following that is that the Levitical priest, then they go into this lengthy prayer to God. And in a sense, what they're doing is they're reminding God of history. They're giving God a history lesson. Do you think God needed a history lesson? No, he didn't. But they've got a purpose in what they're doing here. So they're taking God back and praying to him. And they say, God, do you remember when you created the world? They move on. They say, God, do you remember when you made this covenant promise to Abraham that you would send a redeemer who would bless the whole world? Then they go on and they say, God, do you remember that you actually saved the Israelites from slavery in Egypt? You brought them miraculously through the Red Sea? You took them into the wilderness? Then they go on and they say, God, do you remember that you made this covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai? that law of Moses that we just read about. Do you remember, God, that you made this covenant with them? What we know is the Mosaic law. And so I want to pick up from there as these priests continue in their prayer to God. And remember, they've got a point to this. I don't know if you've ever prayed something to God, and you start off and you start talking to God, but you've got a point you really want to get to at the end. And so you're kind of trying to build God up and make him look good and say, oh, God, you're so wonderful, you're awesome, you're mighty, you're amazing, but God, I need this. Or God, I want this to happen. Well, that's kind of what's going on here as these Levitical priests pray to God. And so let's pick it up in verse 16. And what we're going to see here as they continue to give God this history lesson, in a sense, is we see a pattern of Israel's disobedience and yet God's response in mercy to the Israelites. So let me read from 16 to 19. But they, in our fathers, talking about those people who had been given that covenant the Mosaic law there at Mount Sinai, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and they stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and they appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. So God had freed them from their slavery. They had been crying out to God, we can't take it anymore. Please free us. God had responded, freed them, taken miraculously through the Red Sea. Now all of a sudden things get a little bit difficult for them as they're in the wilderness. And they're like, we want to go back. Hey, could you lead us back? They appoint a leader to take them back into slavery in Egypt. Can you imagine that? But it continues here. 
in, in this prayer, they say, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. They're reminding of God, God of who he is and what he did to those people who had rebelled against him, who had sinned against him. But remember, God, who you are. Remember that you're this kind of God. Verse 18, even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. Despite the fact that these people that God had saved brought them through the Red Sea, brought them to the Mount Sinai, was providing for them in the wilderness, they said, no, it can't be you, God. We'll build this golden calf. And we'll say that he is the one that brought us out of Egypt. What a slap in the face to God from the Israelites. Verse 19, in the prayer, the priests are reminding God again, remember, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. So this is the beginning of a pattern that we're going to see repeated here throughout the rest of Nehemiah chapter 9. These priests reminding God, remember, we know that we were disobedient. We know that our fathers and our forefathers disobeyed you and disobeyed you greatly. But remember, you responded in mercy. And so I want to continue on with the story. If you're familiar with the history of Israel, the Israelites come into the promised land. God goes before them, gives them a great victory. They come in and they settle in the promised land, the, God, the land that God had promised that he would provide for them. And then once again, they turn away from God. They start doing their own thing. They did, as the book of Judges says, what was right in their own eyes. They become disobedient and rebellious once again. And so let's pick it up here in verse 30. Actually, verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient, talking about those who were doing what was right in their own eyes, not wanting God but forsaking him. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you, God, and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. It's the second time we've seen that terminology. They created great blasphemies against God. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hands of their enemies. Talking about the judges. And so the Israelites, in their disobedience, would turn from God. They would get to a point where they realized their sinfulness and their dire um, circumstance and condition. They would cry out to God, and God would send them judges who would save them from their enemies around them, bringing them back to God. But that didn't really last too long because then that pattern was repeated over and over again. So verse 27 
You gave them into the hand of their enemies and made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and heard, and you heard them from heaven. Listen to this. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. We see this pattern continue. Israel's disobedience, God responding in mercy to their disobedience. But after they... But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them, how? According to your mercies. So they're reminding God, remember, remember how the Israelites, were, our forefathers were disobedient, and remember how you responded in mercy. Why would they be praying like this? Because they realized that they too were now disobedient. And they were praying towards a specific purpose. That when they cried out to God, he would then once again respond in mercy to them. Let's continue on there. Um, Verse 29. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law, Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which is if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands." Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Once again, reminding them, remember, God, you were merciful to those who created great blasphemies against you, who acted presumptuously, and I can't even say that word right. Remember that you responded in mercy to them. Because they're going to be crying out to God once again for him to show his mercy to them. Because they realize their unrighteousness, their sinfulness because of the law. And because of their lack of ability to follow the law of Moses. Verse 32. They're starting to get to the point here. This long prayer. Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty, the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, upon our princes, upon our priests, upon our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. God, you have done right in allowing our enemies to overcome us. You have been righteous. You've done the right thing. For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Finally, they get to the point. Oh, God, this great, mighty, awesome God trying to butter him up, in a sense, We've done wrong. We've sinned against you. 
We need you once again to respond to us in mercy because apart from that, we have no hope. Remember, the law showed them that they were unrighteous. They did not have a right relationship with God unless they were believing in that promised Redeemer to come. So they're in dire straits here. And they're praying this prayer to God and saying, God, remember that Israel was disobedient. You responded in mercy over and over and over again. Now, God, we need you to do that one more time. If we track on down to verse 38, they decide that they're going to do something about this. So verse 38 says, because of all this, God, we're making a firm covenant in writing on the sealed document. And on the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. They're saying, hey, God, we're going to get serious about it now, okay? We know that we've messed up in the history of our people time and again. We know that you've responded in mercy. God, this is going to be the time that we get it right. We're going to make this covenant commitment that we're going to follow all those laws and commandments and regulations that you gave there at Mount Sinai. This is the time. We're going to do it. We're going to make this covenant commitment. We go on a little bit further here in chapter 10 of Nehemiah. It, it tells about all those people that were there that signed this covenant And then we get down to verse 28 of chapter 10. It says, The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the love of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, they join with their brothers, all these mentioned earlier here in chapter 10, their nobles, and enter into a curse And an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our of the Lord our Lord in his rules and statutes. God, okay, we're gonna do it. We're gonna get it right this time. And and we're asking all the people to enter into this covenant with us. We're really, truly going to follow all your laws and rules and regulations given there at Mount Sinai. We're going to get it right. So they make this covenant commitment to do it, signed with their names. But the problem is, they couldn't follow all God's rules and regulations. They couldn't follow the commandments given there at Mount Sinai. And we don't have another history lesson, but the problem is this isn't the first time that they've made this kind of commitment. They've done this before numerous times. So if we turn back to Exodus chapter 19, we have a scenario here where the Israelites had come through the Red Sea, God brings them into the wilderness of Sinai, and they come to the base of Mount Sinai. And this is even before the giving of the law of Moses. In, in Exodus 19, I want to read verses 3 through 8. 
says, while Moses went up to God, the rest of the people are at the foot of the mountain, Moses went up to God, the Lord called him out of the mountain saying, thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptian and how I abhor you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. And so God's telling Moses, I'm going to give you this law. I'm going to give you these commands. And I want you to then tell these commands and this law to the people of Israel. But it's a conditional covenant. It's a covenant based upon the obedience of the Israelites. He says, if you obey all my commands, then you will be my treasure people. There's a condition there. And look at the response of the people as Moses comes down and says, hey, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you these rules and regulations. I'm going to give you these commandments. So what do the people do in response? Verse 7 of Exodus 19. So Moses came down, called the elders of the people, and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. And what did the people do? All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We don't know what he's going to command us to do, but we'll do it, whatever he says. Does that sound familiar? That's what the people did there in Nehemiah chapter 10. So God calls Moses back up the mountain. And he's going to give them now these commandments, these laws, these rules, and regulations. And then he's going to get them, and he's going to come back down to the people of Israel again at the foot of the mountain. Turn ahead to Exodus chapter 24, and we have that scenario where Moses does come back down with the law of Moses all those rules and regulations and commandments. And I want to read to you from Exodus 24, verses 3 through 8. It says, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Easy for them to say, right? And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. So he's reading these laws, the law that was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, this covenant. Verse 7, then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant, 
that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So we see numerous times they're saying, even before they had been given the law, they're like, yeah, God will obey it. Now that they have been given the law of Moses, they say again, yeah, we'll do it. We'll be obedient. We'll obey every last one of them. And so there's this covenant ritual that takes place. Moses taking the blood and sprinkling it on the people. And what that is doing is signifying that the people are responsible in this covenant relationship. And this blood signifies that if you do not keep your end of the bargain, if you do not keep your end of the covenant, this blood signifies that you should die. You should give your life because you have not kept that bargain. God, in that covenant relationship, is upholding his end. The people did not uphold their end very long because we already saw that when Moses came down the mountain, they had built a golden calf. Said, this is the God that freed us out of Egypt. And so, we see this covenant commitment here in Nehemiah chapter 10. Yeah, God, this is the time. We're gonna get it right. We're gonna, we're really gonna follow all, all of what you've commanded. But the problem is, they couldn't. They never have, and they never could. Because what's going on here is that the people of Israel may have been redeemed through God's mercy physically time and time again. That was all part of God's plan. God responded in mercy, and so the people of Israel were redeemed physically, but not all of them were redeemed spiritually. Only those who believed in the promise of a coming Redeemer were being saved spiritually. And so what's the deal with God's mercy here? Why does he continue to respond in mercy to their disobedience and rebellion? It's because he's pointing forward to the one through whom true mercy would be shown. He's pointing forward to Jesus Christ, that redeemer that he'd promised. Some of the Israelites were believing in that, but the majority of them weren't. Only a remnant of all those people of Israel were truly believing in that promise of a redeemer. And so when we see this history lesson, when we see how God has responded in mercy over and over again, that is a sign, it's a shadow pointing forward to the time he would send Jesus Christ. And true mercy would be shown, not just to save people physically, but to save people spiritually. And so, I want to take a look ahead now at to how this story continues. We've taken a look to see how the book of Nehemiah reveals God's continuing plan of redemption. The law was meant to point forward to Jesus. All the mercies of God demonstrated throughout Israel's history were meant to point forward to Jesus. Going back to the song, guess what? It's all about Jesus, right? So now we come to the New Testament. And I want us to turn to Luke chapter 1. 
And here in Luke chapter one, the angel has visited Mary, has promised that she will have this special child born to her miraculously, even though she hasn't been with her husband, and that this child would be called Emmanuel, God with us. This child would indeed be the son of God. And so Mary responds in what we title the Magnificat. So follow along with me. And remember, this is a continuing story of God responding in mercy to mankind's disobedience. Because as we looked at the book of Nehemiah, and they made this commitment, we're going to get it right this time, God. As Joe so clearly showed us last week, we get to Nehemiah chapter 13. And once again, we find the Israelites had become disobedient. The priesthood had become corrupt. They had neglected the temple. They were marrying foreign wives that they were told very clearly in the law not to marry. They were neglecting the Sabbath. All of that there in Nehemiah 13. So this pattern of disobedience and mercy we see continuing. And so at the end of Nehemiah in chapter 13, which brings the Old Testament to a close, we see this pattern of disobedience again. So in this pattern, what would you expect to the Israelites' disobedience? What would you expect to come next? Certainly God's mercy, right? And as we open up the very beginning of the New Testament and we take a look at Luke chapter 1, follow me through um, verses 46 through 55. This is Mary speaking. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant, For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Speaking once again of God's mercy in response to the disobedience of the Israelites. Verse 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of what? In remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. She's saying, I know that this one who will be born from my body that God has promised will happen, he is the true demonstration of God's mercy for sinful people. And not just for Israel, but for anyone who would believe in this one as God's demonstration of mercy to sinful mankind. If we follow down a little bit further, we see Zechariah. He is the father of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist has born, been born miraculously once again. 
to Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth. And here's the response of Zechariah, starting in verse 67. And his father, John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Talking about Jesus Christ. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show what? To show mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child... Now, one, now he's talking about his son, John the Baptist. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. So as we move from the Old Testament into the New Testament, this pattern continues. This story of redemption now continues on with God once again showing his mercy to sinful, disobedient people. This time, though, the mercy is shown in and through the birth of this child, Jesus Christ. And so we see that the story of God's redemption is a story of God acting in mercy towards those who had turned from him and disobeyed him. And we see that story continuing. But the story of God's redemption and mercy through Jesus Christ does not stop there. And I'm almost done, so hang in there. Um, We're not going to be here six hours like they were um, in the reading of the law, I promise. Because this baby boy through whom God sent to show mercy to all mankind, for all those who would believe in him, this baby boy grows up to be a man. And at the age of 33 years old, he's crucified on a cross. And he's buried. He comes to life, resurrected again three days later. He's on earth for a short while, and then he ascends to heaven. That's the true demonstration of God's mercy that all the other mercy from the Old Testament is pointing toward. And Paul, once again, in his book to the church in Ephesus, talks about God's mercy. So I want to read to you Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 5. Talking to the people who were believers at the church in Ephesus, he says, And you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature... Children of wrath, God's wrath, like the rest of mankind. So Paul's saying here, 
look at who you were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You are following your own sinful passions and desires. You are following the way of the world around you. You are even following the way of Satan. You were by nature children of wrath, deserving of God's wrath, deserving of God's eternal punishment. But fortunately, it doesn't stop there. We get to verse 4. And it says, but God, being rich, rich in what? Being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And so, as we took a look at the story of Nehemiah, we saw that it was a story of God's redemption. That story that was founded from before the foundations and beginning of this world. That story then that continues into the New Testament with the birth of this baby boy. And then the eventual crucifixion of Jesus Christ. His burial, his resurrection, and his ascension. And Paul says here, it's because of God's great mercy that he sent this one. Jesus Christ is our mercy from God. And so it's all about him. Why do we sing a song like we sang there? It's all about you. Because he is the one through whom God has shown great mercy to people like us who were dead in our trespasses and sins, who were subject to God's wrath by nature, just as we were born into the world. But God, being rich in mercy, sent this one to do what he did for us. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your great mercy. Father, words are not enough to express our gratitude to you for all that you've done through Jesus Christ. We thank you that we do have your written word that shows us clearly your plan of redemption through Jesus Christ. We're glad that your word has always shown that it's all about Jesus and how you sent him to redeem the world back to yourself. And we're thankful that the story continues on, showing us that one day Jesus Christ will come again. And the world will be perfectly then redeemed back to you. And everything will be made right. So Father God, we're thankful for this story. And we're thankful that it's all about Jesus. May we praise you and worship you for Jesus Christ and all you've done in and through him. This we pray. Amen.